0: Welcome to First Christian Church again. It's good to have you with us, particularly if you're a guest. We're very glad that you're with us. Well, I'm glad that everybody's here, but at least if you're a guest with us today, I want to say a special welcome to you and introduce myself. My name is Wayne, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm looking forward to spending some time reviewing some things in Scripture with you this morning. I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to a very difficult book to find, a book called Haggai, or Haggai or however you want to say it, it's um, toward the end of the Old Testament. If you can find the New Testament, Matthew, starting with Matthew, go back just a few pages and you'll find Haggai. If you uh, don't own a Bible, you'll see there's one in the pew rack in front of you and uh, the page numbers, depending on what Bibles in the pew rack there in front of you, are on the, is on the screen behind me. And as a matter of fact, if you don't own a Bible, would you take that home today as our gift to you? I'm serious about that. Each week we lose, not lose, but we see about six or seven, it's not the right word, is it? <laughs> We, we get ripped off. No, that's not it at all. <laughs> Seriously. It's kind of cool on Monday mornings when we have some folk come in and kind of restock the shelves, so to speak, and, uh, and uh, we six or seven each week, people taking them home. Great stuff. Great stuff. So we'd be honored if you'd take that with, with you today. While you're looking for Haggai, I I want to uh, see if I can jog your memory for some of us who may have been are familiar with uh, that movie trilogy called Lord of the Rings. Are you familiar with that? A uh, whole series of movies. And uh, there's, a, there's a scene in the second movie that's particularly fascinating that it really applies to what we're going to discover in Haggai today. It's a scene that f- centers around two of the main characters of the movie, uh, it starts with uh, uh, the, the the princess of a nation or an empire called, empire called Rohan. And Rohan is about to be invaded. And the king uh, acknowledges that there's no way they can defend their territory. And so he issues an edict that all the inhabitants of Rohan are going to have to evacuate their homes and their village and the castle, and they're going to have to go way back in the forest and the mountains in a place called Helm's Deep because this attack is coming. And so as the scene opens up, his daughter, whose name is Erwin, is in her chambers, and you can see in the background her servants scurrying around to pack everything. And you watch as she begins to contemplate what might happen and what will happen when this attack occurs. And she's quite profound in thinking, I'm not going to be taken captive. They may think I'm a beautiful princess, but I'm going to be a warrior. And the scene opens up with her taking a sword out of a sheath, and she holds it here like in front of her, and she begins, if you will, a dance with this sword. And she doesn't think anyone's watching. And she's very intense. And at one point, as she swings around this way, The camera zooms in, and as she comes around, there's this loud clank, and it's where she meets the knife of a man who's been watching her, the hero, Aragon, and she's furious that he has been watching her in her chambers as she's been doing this imaginary dance, if you will, with the sword. And she turns around, she goes, and he says to her, You have skill, my lady. And she's still angry. And it's his knife versus her sword. And so he realizes, I can't, we can't continue this battle or this, even this potential, you know, struggle here. And so he puts his knife down and her sword is pointing right at his face. And it's like she realizes, okay, I shouldn't kill him. Probably not. Besides, we'd ruin the movie. But nonetheless. And she goes, "I fear neither death, nor pain." And he says, "What do you fear?" And has a tre- a tremendous line which I love. This is what she said: "I fear a cage." In other words, I fear being captured, to stay behind bars until youth and old age accept them, and all chance of valor has gone beyond recall or desire. I fear settling for second best. Aragon has a fascinating response to that, but I'm going to make you wait to hear what it is because I want to tell you how this applies to what we are going to look at in Haggai because what Aragon sees in her, he realizes there's a person and there's a fight in her and there's an event in her that's being called forth. And I want to tell you today, what you're going to learn in Haggai is this. There is an event, there's a person, there's a project, there's something inside you that God wants to call into reality today, if you'll let him. And that's what you're going to learn, and what we're going to learn together as we look at this book, this tiny little book called Haggai. We're coming to the end, almost, of 12 books that we've been looking at throughout the year, at various points throughout the year, and today we're looking at Haggai. We've titled this series, The Minor Prophets, because they are minor prophets, not because the, the, the messages are, that come from these books are minor, but rather they're minor simply because they're very small books. And we're learning about how what happened many, many years ago can impact us. And so if you're a guest with us, I want to bring you up to speed today with what we've been learning as we've been looking through these books. And if you're not a guest, then by now you should know this because I've said it every week, namely that this period of time that we're looking at called these Minor Prophets centers starts really around the time of 1000 B.C., You get that process and you get that date in your head. At 1000 BC, the nation of Israel was the leader of the known world at that point. King David, David was the king and they had all kinds of wealth. They had all kinds of political might. They had all kinds of economic um, strength and everybody kind of kowtowed to the the Israelites. But in the ensuing years, that shifted dramatically. It was known as the nation of Israel, a large nation, so to speak, um, at that point, but in the in the generations that came after that, sons and grandsons and great grandsons, they, generally speaking, all wanted a shot at being king, and there wasn't enough space for them for them all to be king of Israel. So eventually, the nation split into two, and so when you get to the minor prophets, when uh, you read the name Israel, you're really talking about the group in the north that were ruled by one king, and the group in the south was ruled by a different king, and back and forth, known as Israel and Judah. Eventually, by the time you get to Jesus' day, they're back one nation again, and they're called Israel. But for the time where we are, you've got to think, you've got to kind of parallel streams going. Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south. Both of those nations, two separate nations, cousins, if you will, Had the responsibility to follow God, and God said, If you follow me, if you stay with me, then my hand of protection will be upon you and you will have a great life. But the people in the north, by 721, had wandered away from God's precepts and God's understandings, and they got caught as the Assyrian Empire began to ascend globally and economically and with military. And they literally were taken captive by the Assyrians in 721 and they disappeared from the face of the earth, they were annihilated. People who are Jewish today are not any of the descendants of the people of the north. The people in the south, people of Judah, they walked with God for a longer period of time, but they eventually too wandered off. And in 586, they got caught in the flux between the decline of the Assyrian Empire and the rise of the Babylonian Empire. And so they got caught in the middle and they were taken captive in 586 BC. In that case, they were not annihilated. They were simply carted off into slavery over to Babylon. That's as far as we've gone in this Minor prophet series so far, 536 B.C. Today, pardon me, 586 B.C. Today, we're going a step further. 586 B.C., the people of Judah carted off into slavery in Babylon, and they were there for 50 years. After 50 years, the king of Babylon says, okay, I've had enough of you guys. You can go home. So they returned in 536 B.C. after 50 years. Actually, they probably didn't return not the ones who were carted off, but probably their children and grandchildren because they would have died there in 50 years with, with life expectancies definitely under 40 years of age. So children and grandchildren return to Babylon. They get involved in their lives and we get to the book of Haggai, which is set at 520. So think about this. Can we go back one screen, guys, please? Just go backwards one so we can see where we are. 586 BC, they're carted off into slavery. They're there for how long? One more time? 50 years, right? So that takes us to 536. Does that make sense? And then 16 years later, 520 BC, the book of Haggai is put into play. And if you read with me the first chapters, first verses of the book of Haggai, you can see why we can name it so precisely at 520 BC because we know who was king and we know from other historical documents when he was king. We read this in the book of Haggai, verse 1 in the second year of king darius on the first day of the sixth month so that's why we can through other historical documents we know when darius was ruling and so we say in the second year of his rule on the first day of the sixth month <coughs> excuse me 520 bc they've been back in judah for 16 years at this point the word of the lord came through the prophet haggai to zerubbabel son of shealtiel governor of judah so there you see judah right This is who we're talking about, the southern kingdom, and to Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. They've been back for 16 years. They've been involved in other things rather than worrying about what's going on in the temple because the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? While this house remains a ruin. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. He's saying, you've been working, working your tails off and it's not going well for you. Why is that? You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but aren't warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains, bring down timber, build my house, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? If you want to know why life is so hard, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their due and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. So again, let me point out, excuse me, this is post-exile, right? This is after they've gone to Babylon, and they've come back. They came back in 536 B.C. after 50 years over there. This is 520, 16 years later, and they have forgotten the most important, most important marking factor of what it means to be Jewish. That there are people who worship the one true God. We looked at this last week. First commandment that God gave the people of, of Israel when they left Egypt. The, the defining characteristic of Israel was that they, they worshipped one God only. And they worshipped the one true God. And they have forgotten that. Excuse me. And so as they come back God's saying, you should have repaired the temple. And we understand why they didn't in many ways because they come back and they look at what the temple used to look like, and they've got the plans from when Solomon built it. And it's a huge building for the ancient world, very intricate, with full of all very important and expensive artifacts. And to replace those artifacts and to replace what was in the temple would have cost a, lot, a ton of money. They don't have money. They've been away in exile for 50 years. And they look at it and they go, this project is too big for who we are right now. And this is all about a life outlook. This is about them being willing to take on something that's bigger than who they are, bigger than what they can imagine getting taken place. And for us here, as we listen to this today, this is about us saying, can we take on something that's bigger than who we are? As individuals, can we do that? Can God call something out of us that we may not, in our own estimation, be able to do? God's major complaint is, you're being complacent. You're just willing to settle for second best. I've got better things in store for you. Why are you willing to settle for second best? You know, I, um, I think about my own personality in this regard from time to time. This week I was thinking, okay, if, you know, am I complacent in any way? And I'm, you know, okay, I work with a bunch of people and we've done a lot of years together and we know each other fairly intimately and they probably know my personality. And what, If they were to make a list of the major things that bother them, if I was to make a list of the things that bother me, I could start a list that would, I suppose, the first thing I could say on my top 10 list of things that get on my nerves about me one would be complacency, I suppose. I suppose I could get around to saying that. Number two could be, well, I don't care. I'll get back to it some other time. I'll tell you the rest of them. <laughs> That's kind of how the people of Israel were, people of Judah. They're, they're going, we'll get to it when we get around to it. You know, there are times when there are these incredible opportunities before you where God says, here's the opportunity, go for it. But I must admit, there are other times when there are incredible opportunities before you and God says no. And we have some examples of that in Scripture. I mean, to to know the difference between, okay, there's a, a field of opportunities. Do we say yes or no? Sometimes God says yes, sometimes God says no. I don't always know how to tell the difference, but there are places in Scripture where God says no. For example, do you remember the story in Acts chapter 16 of Paul and his cohorts are traveling in a place, called, they're about to go into a place called Bithynia. See if I can jog your memory in this. Paul comes to Christ uh, in a very unusual way, and if you know that story, you, you know what I'm talking about, and he has this dramatic encounter with God, and he becomes incredibly zealous for the things of God, and he's a, he's a young, sharp legal mind, probably in his early 30s, late 20s, early 30s, and he he uh, he, he becomes this devoted follower of Jesus Christ, and He says, hey, you know what we should do? We should spread the message of Jesus away from just Jerusalem. And we should do what Jesus said and take his message everywhere. And I'm willing to do that. And so he begins traveling around the Mediterranean basin. And he's visiting all these towns. And wherever he goes, he gets people to come to know Christ. And they start a little church. And off they go. And then he'll go to the next town. And along the way, he collects people who travel with him. And they've got this group of people that go from place to place. In Acts chapter 16, they're in Asia Minor. Basically, where Greece and Turkey come together today, and they're up there, and, and they look at this area called Bithynia, and they go, you know what? It would be really cool for us to go and do the message, tell the message of Jesus Christ in Bithynia, and I'm convinced he says that that would go really well. And it looks like the field is, I mean, it, it is great. It would be great, to have great results. But in Acts chapter sixteen. There's a fascinating statement where Luke, who's writing all this down as they travel together, Luke says, you know, we got to Bithynia, and although we tried, and although the opportunities were really good, we couldn't get there. You know why? This is the answer. This this is the language he uses. The Spirit of Jesus would not let us. Great opportunity, but God said No. There are moments in the life of our church or in your moments where there's a great opportunity and you go, man, is the door open? Is the door closed? And is God wanting me to do this or not do this? And and sometimes it's yes and sometimes it's no. And I must be honest and tell you, I'm not always able in the moment to exactly decipher the difference. And that's fair. That's being honest and transparent for you this morning. But I will tell you this, for the people of Judah, there was this great opportunity to build the temple and God did not say no. God said, I want you to do it. And they're saying, "Ah, probably not. Now's not the time. It's inconvenient for us. Read with me and see what they said. Haggai, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? You've got, think about what's going on. They've been gone for 50 years. They come back 16 years earlier. They come back and they've, they've got their farms working again now. They're working hard. It says there in the scripture that they're, they're planting a lot. They've got, they've got it all worked out. And, and they're, they're, they've got their vocations and, and everything is back on track. And the people who are farmers are doing that. The artisans are doing their work. And in the middle of it, it's not working. And God says, "Do you want to know why? You've got your focus in the wrong place. You're paneling your homes. In other words, you're not just coming back and putting the walls up. You're starting to redecorate. You've repainted three times now, and you didn't like the linoleum force, so now you've gone and put hardwood in, literally. Paneled homes. What that's all about, they've gone to the mountains. Think in the ancient world. They've gone to the mountains, taken down trees, and put paneling in their homes. Now, for us, paneling is we go to Lowe's. And you can do it in four hours, you know. This is a, weeks upon weeks to do this. And God says, and you still haven't done a thing with the house of the Lord. And I've got judgment upon you, verse 5. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much but harvested little. You, have, you eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. You want to know why it's not going well for you, people of Judah? Your priorities are all wrong. And God's calling them to account saying, I want you to think about how are you worshiping me rather than putting stuff in your house. Now there's nothing wrong with putting stuff in your house as long as it's done in the right priorities and they had it out of whack. Remember if I can remind can I remind you about the most important dynamic of the people of Israel the people of Judah was that they were a worshipping nation and in their case worship was tied to a specific locality they come out of, or a specific building. They came out of Egypt many years before that, and they come across the Red Sea, and does the God? God says, you're going to worship me, and they, what? You have to build something. What did they build? They built something called the tent of tabernacle, the ta- tent of meeting the tabernacle, and that tent travels with them wherever they go, and whenever they set the tent up, they can see God's presence literally in the form of a cloud come down and fill that that tent. And then when they get to the promised land, David sets up the boundaries of the promised land and they go, this is Israel. And he gives his son Solomon the responsibility. You're going to build a temple. And they build this magnificent temple and it's got all these carvings and all this wonderful stuff inside. And then after it's all complete, they have this ceremony and the Shekinah glory, the absolute glory of God comes and it fills the place. And for the rest of their nation's life, They are supposed to worship God there. And what are they doing? They haven't repaired it. God's glory, Shekinah glory, is not amongst them anymore. There's no place where they can go and meet God and where the priests can go and lead them in worship. And they're paneling their houses. It's different for us in the New Testament time. We are, we're not Old Testament people. We are New Testament people. We live on the other side of Jesus' resurrection. But worship is still important to us, absolutely. We just realize that since the day of Pentecost, it is no longer tied, God's presence is no longer tied to one building. The Holy Spirit comes and we know with that His Spirit is poured out throughout the whole world globally. Jesus said, it's not now a building but wherever two or three of my believers who follow me, when they are gathered in my name, then my presence is there. And that presence of God is now discovered in all kinds of places all around the world at various times. We're meeting here today. There are other churches around the city who are meeting today and the presence of God is here as is the presence of God in those places. We've got people who are six or seven hours ahead of us in terms of time and the Holy Spirit was there the Holy Spirit is here we got people in Hawaii who are six or seven hours behind us the Holy Spirit's going to be there it's not tied to a building we we own a building but this building is not the church we should say instead I say it like this I'm going to the church and that's not really what's going on the people are the church and really when you come to this locality you're going to the church's building does that make sense? We are the people who are the church, and it doesn't matter um, where, where people meet anymore. We have in our own nation church plants that don't own a building where these churches are being developed, and they'll, they'll get a group of believers to go, and they'll rent out a movie theater, or they'll rent out a high school gymnasium. They'll do what we call church in the box, or church out of a box. They literally pull up a trailer on Sunday morning. This is what Benjamin does, my son. Six o'clock in the morning on Sundays, they pull up the trailer to a movie house, And they unload a whole PA, lights, all the equipment that they need to do church. And then at one o'clock in the afternoon, they put it all back in and cart cart it off. Do you know what? The Holy Spirit is there in that place. They may have showed a restricted movie the night before, but the presence of the Lord is there. You know what I mean? Or that's maybe the way it is in, in the U.S. in terms of different locations. You go other places around the world. There's not even a building at all. When we go to Kenya... We'll have these wonderful church services where they don't own a thing that's out there. And we're literally meeting under a tree. I took this photo in um, 2011 when we were there. And doesn't that just look like Africa? Yeah. You see that canopy of that tree and you can imagine the zebras underneath it. Well, that's where in many of the places in Kenya where the church gathers. I mean, we were there. Every time we go, we meet usually some church congregation under a tree. Again, this photo is from, these photos are from 2011. And uh, we're down there. You can see there's some, I'll just say it straight up, there's some Americans and some Kenyans right there worshiping the Lord together. The fellow in the blue parker, one of the elders in that church. I didn't understand a word he said. He's praying in that point in either, I don't know, either the language of the Maasai or Swahili. I couldn't tell the difference at that point. But he's praying. And I want to tell you, regardless of a building, the presence of God was there with us. The presence of God was there in a very powerful way. In the Old Testament, it was tied to a building. For us, in the New Testament, it's tied to people when we gather. But we can get our priorities wrong just as easily they could get our, their priorities wrong. And they weren't, prepare, they weren't repairing the building. We are the responsible to repair each other's lives and to create a place for worship. Look how Peter, the apostle, puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, he's talking about post resurrection. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, Now, as you come to Jesus, in other words, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. In other words, if you are a follower of Jesus, as you have come to Jesus, you also, if you are a follower of Jesus today, this, this is a description of you, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What's going on here? The old people of, people of Judah in Haggai's time, they were responsible to say, okay, priests, we're going to provide you with a place where you can lead us in worship. And we're going to build, we're going to put the stones back together. Peter then comes along and says, but now in the new, new covenant times, you are actually living stones being built into what? A spiritual house in order to do what? You are the priests. And now it's not the case that we in the Old Testament where the few priests got to go in and experience the presence of God. Now as a royal priesthood, all of you, all of us, we get to experience the presence of God. We get to be people who worship. And look what happens, verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And we have responsibilities. If we're the priests, if we're the living stones, we have responsibilities just like they had in the Old Testament. It's the same responsibilities. One, to worship. And then secondly, to declare the praises of God, to live our lives in such a way that our witness declares praises to God. In the Old Testament, in Haggai, They had the wrong priorities. Their lives should have been tied to that temple. And they should, yes, work on their homes. There's nothing wrong with having a great house. Make it as beautiful as you want, God would say to the people of Haggai. Make it as spectacular as you want, but keep it in the priority of it being under a setting of worship. For those of us here, we need to be careful that we keep the same idea in mind. It's, not, it's no longer about a building. But what are we doing to build up the church of God so the church of God will worship and the church of God will declare praises of God that others will see in acts, through acts of service? On a side note, though, having said all that, as I was thinking about this this week, it occurred to me, we can, help, we can get you to help out a little bit in this. In regards to our building... This building is 17 years old. And if we are New Covenant people, New Testament people, we then don't have to talk about this building in terms of a place of, of being a temple, but we do have to talk about this place in terms of good stewardship. And so at 17 years of, of age, if you will, most of this building, um, we need to be very careful how we deal with it. I was sitting in my office today, early this morning, and I heard the furnace kick in. It's above my office. I thought, mm, that doesn't sound right. That sounds, is that a bearing? Oof. Monday project, what's going on with the furnace upstairs with the fan, something's going wrong up there. Hopefully it doesn't throw a belt, <laughs> whatever, you know, between now and then. But the point being, at 17 years of age, some portions of this, this building do need some attention. And so we're, we'd like to suggest that we create a, uh, a number of serve together teams. And if you go out to the connect wall this, this morning, Uh, You'll notice on the upper right-hand corner, a bunch of those uh, holders. There's about 200 sheets of that that say Campus Care. And we would like to suggest that if you would help us with paint, with repairing sheetrock, we tend to have a lot of children around here, and the sheetrock sometimes gets a little bit damaged. Praise the Lord. Right? You can have a pristine building and no children. Right? Right? Why don't we have children and keep the building pristine at the same time? Everybody up with that, all right? Well, I like the kids around. If you can help us with plumbing, if you can help us with landscaping. I I would love to see a bunch of groups come together and say, we're gonna make our focus of how can we make certain that this place looks good so it can be a place that attracts people and calls people to come here and experience God's presence because the people come to God. The people come to worship. That's what the people of Judah were missing. They were settling for second best. Straight up. Straight up. They were complacent about the things of God. They were lazy when it came to saying, what are we going to do about being people of worship? God expected better from them. God expected more from them. And he's basically saying, don't settle for second best. The question I would have for you today is what's God calling you to do? What's God calling you to do that's bigger than what you've done in the past? What's God, who is God calling you to be that's bigger than you were in the past? Because it's inside you and it's being called forth. It's, and the people of Judah was all about surrender. They weren't letting God be in charge. I would say the same for us. If we look, feel like, man, I'm working, working my fingers to the bone. I'm trying to put that money in that purse and those resources in my family's life, and it just feels like it just drops, it falls through holes in the bottom of the purse all the time. Is it feasible that the struggle is all about your surrender? The people of Judah, I've said this before, if they lived under God's hand of protection and blessing and leadership, it all went well. And God says to them in Haggai. You got out from under that for a while. Good news is eventually they did get back under there. If you read the rest of Haggai, they come to their senses and they say, we'll fix our place of worship. In our time, if we get out from under the hand of God's protection and blessing, there's gonna be struggle. I'm not saying that life is all roses this way. But I'm saying I'd rather surrender to God being in charge of my life. How's that surrender business going? I hope your house looks great. I hope you have granite countertops. I do. Hear me. I hope you've got the marvelous, the 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 most spectacular paneling in your man cave. (laughs) Whatever the case. But I hope you're doing it under the understanding of surrender to God's will in your life. As a matter of fact, as we have done with these other um, messages from the Minor Prophets, I'd like us to sing something about that right now. And uh, I would suspect you probably know this song. Would you sing it with me? All to Jesus. surrender. Make it your prayer. Bye, sir. guys, if you can get to that place, you know what can happen? The thing that is that, that person that's inside you, that dream, that hope, it can be released by the work of God because you're under his direction, under his leadership, and the things that you'd always hope for and say, man, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to get there. With his direction, you'll get there and the holes in your purse get sealed up. Can I take you back to that story again from the trilogy? Remember the story, Erewhon? She pulls out the knife, the, the, the sword out of the sheath and she, she runs her hand up it and she does the dance. She comes around and she meets Aragon's knife and in anger and frustration and like even almost a little bit of bitterness that nobody realizes who I am. She says, I fear neither death nor pain. And then he asks her, what do you fear? And she says, I fear a cage to stay behind bars until youth and old age accept them. And all chance of valor is gone beyond recall or desire. There's that dream you have within you yet that you go, man, it feels like it's caged in. Aragon realizes that there's more inside that woman in front of him than others see. And that she's often been overlooked simply because she's the princess and she's a beautiful princess. And he has a tremendous line. Watch the clip and see what he he says. some skill with a blade. The women of this country learned long ago that those without swords can still die upon them. I fear neither death nor pain. What do you fear, my lady? A cage. Stay behind bars until use and old age accept them. And all chance of valor has gone beyond recall or desire. What did he say to her? He would say, I would say, the Spirit of God would say to any of you who feel like you're caught in the cage. And it's like, man, I, 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 there's a different person inside of me than everybody knows. And if only would somebody would open the door and open the, open the cage, I could get out and I could really show this world what I'm made of. Stay under the surrender of God and let God call that person out Let God call that dream and make it alive, not only for you but for the people around you because um, Aragon says that cage will not be your fate. He says to her, you are a daughter of the king. Friend, you are a son of the king of kings, a daughter of the king of kings. And do not settle for second best. The people of Judah in Haggai's time, they heard the word of the Lord. And in surrender, they got a different life approach. And they did indeed rebuild the temple. And they experienced the the presence of God. And they had a whole different life approach going forward from that. I would ask you to accept God's challenge today. Because your fate is not for you to be caged in. But under the surrender of God Almighty, under that place, God can work in you and through you to his glory as we be people of worship, people of commitment, people who say, Lord, what you got for me? Let's pray together. Father, speak to our hearts today, Lord. There are people here today, God, who feel like they're stuck in some cage and I ask, oh Lord, that you would change their understanding of life before them and that you would graciously call all of us, God, into a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ, so that we would indeed, all of us, be living stones, a royal people, a royal priesthood, a chosen people, God. Enable us to know what it means to walk with you through Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.